how very much I've loved you. How very much I've tried my best to give you the good life. He said, Jesus himself said, the Son of God. In this law, he said, dwelleth all the law and all the prophets. Childish manner, Scott and I impishly danced around his body before he was dead. Just strangely enough, it was a rush, a teenager's rush. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Yeah! Hello, strangers. It's been a while, I feel, since I've done a full episode. Other than that episode I previously released, which was The Vampire Murder and the Girl on Ice, I think is what I called it. And then The Girl Who Lived, which was the story of... Um, Fuck, I forgot her name. But it was a heroine story of a girl who was had her arms chopped off and she survived her run-in with a serial killer. Uh, but yeah, it's been a while. And uh, to say the least, I've missed you quite a lot. But today I bring you two very interesting cases. The first one, I'll be honest, it's kind of, it's like whatever. I probably shouldn't have picked it, but I already announced it and I didn't really want to change it. But <laughs> it is about Ira Einhorn, or as most know him as the Unicorn Killer. Um, I think what's just kind of so fascinating about him is how he was able to just um, kind of, I don't want to say outsmart the police. He just kind of had a head start. But he was able to escape for so many years and kind of live uh, his life, you know, away from what he was being accused of and what he was finally convicted of. Because I, I believe he was not, he was found not too long ago, I would see at least maybe 10 years ago, I think it was, because it was in like 2002, I think, that he was finally captured and tried and captured and then tried because he was able to get away just because of the weird um, and just the conflicting laws of European and American, you know, laws and stuff like that. But and then the second case is a heavy hitter one that I know you guys are going to want to stick around for because that fucking individual is fucked up to say the least so there is going to be a warning for that guy because he is pretty fucking fucked up individual uh, and that is peter Curtin, the vampire of dusseldorf or the boogeyman of dusseldorf because that dude was one sadistic motherfucker so let's get on with the first case that is ira einhorn or the unicorn killer so on March 28, 1979, two things would happen on this Wednesday. The first being at around 4 in the morning, a nuclear power plant known as Three Mile Island, located in Daphne County, Pennsylvania, near Harrisburg, would have a partially meltdown of a reactor leaking radiation into the atmosphere. This accident would go on to be the most significant accident in U.S. commercial nuclear power plant history. However, this accident would be overshadowed by the second incident. Well still sleeping when a detective by the name of Michael Chitwood rang the outside buzzer of 3411 Ray Street on the same morning of Wednesday, March 28, 1979, it was about 10 minutes past 9 o'clock when a man named Ira Einhorn grabbed a robe and pressed his button that would unlock the outside door. Michael Chitwood, accompanied with six other police officials, opened the door and began climbing the steps. 
Before they could even knock, Ira Einhorn had opened his door. Not fully covered and exposing most of himself to the officials, it was then that Chitwood identified himself as a homicide detective and told Ira that he had a search and seizure warrant for his home. I think that was kind of a power move on Ira Einhorn. So, like, look at what I'm packing. This is my weapon. Ira Einhorn, laughing, said, search what? Detective Chitwood tells Ira to read the warrant. Einhorn goes over the 50-page document and discovers he is a suspect in the disappearance of one Helen Holly Maddox. It was almost 20 months after Maddox had gone missing, and in a wardrobe in Michael, Michael in Ira Einhorn's <laughs> closet, Chitwood found Maddox's suitcase, handbag, driver's license, license, and social security card. In the same wardrobe, he also found Maddox's body in a trunk packed in styrofoam. In the trunk was air fresheners and newspapers covering her decomposing body, and it was partially mummified, and the remains weighed only about 37 pounds. A postmortem revealed that Maddox had suffered trauma to the head and her skull was smashed, smashed in several places as a result. However, the position of the body and size of the trunk meant that she had actually been alive and semi-conscious when placed in the trunk and had died trying to claw her fucking way out. That's fucking brutal. Upon his arrest, Einhorn reportedly shrugged indifferently and said, you found what you found. He was kind of a smug, arrogant asshole. He, well, I mean, I don't know him personally, but from the writings and, and, and most of the research that I've got from the for, for this case was from a book written by Stephen Stephen Levy called The Unicorn's Secret. So shout out to Stephen Levy for writing that book. But when he wrote this book, it was way before he was caught. So uh, he, he didn't mention when he was caught because this book, I, I'm looking through it right now as I speak, um, trying to look for a copyright date. This book was actually made in 1988. That's crazy. The book was made in 1988, so well before he was caught. That was that was the year I was born. Was in 1988. That was the the year upon which I I came into the world and unleashed my whatever it is that I unleashed. <laughs> So anyways, back to the story. Einhorn was represented by the notorious defense attorney Arlene Arlen Specter. Later a senator, he served on the infamous Warren Commission and was the author of the single assassin crazy bullet theory used to explain the assassination of John F. Kennedy. So he was a conspiracy theorist, this Arlen Specter. Specter argued successfully at the bail hearing on April 3rd of 1979 for bail to be set at the strangely low sum of $40,000, of which only 10% had to be paid in cash to secure the release of the bailer, or of Ira Einhorn. The bail hearing in itself was abnormal, as it was unheard of for bail to be granted in murder cases at the time. While Einhorn's friends in high places might not have influenced the bail hearing or the amount of bail itself, they certainly did put up the money for his release. Because as you know, um, before he was convicted of this, and still even after, uh, Ira Einhorn was a self-proclaimed mind guru. He was part of the, uh, he was a former hippie, but he, I, I don't think he really, well, he used to be a hippie back in the 60s, but he kind of departed from that whole scene because he believed 
he believed himself to be like this higher power because he was a he believed in the power of the mind and he would experiment with LSD and cannabis because he believed strongly that cannabis and LSD were the keys to unlocking the power of your mind. And he would, he would go on, uh, he would meditate a lot well on LSD and he would claim he would have visions of the future. And what he saw the future was a technological advancement. And he, he was the one that supposedly dubbed the new age movement. But some of the people of high power that he had was some named Barbara Bronfman, a Montreal socialite who had married into a wealthy distillery family, and she was the one that paid Einhorn's bail. Still Einhorn protesting his innocence, Einhorn was released onto the streets. He told anyone and everyone that he would clear his name, claiming it was a conspiracy by the CIA or FBI who wanted to discredit him and halt his political activities. Um, Cause again, like I said, he uh, not only was he, cause he didn't actually have a job. His job was basically creating blueprints for various companies. He had friends from people from AT&T from bell, which is a company. I don't know if it's still around, but bell was a telecommunications company. Basically uh, they were like a telephone company, if you will, um, you know, telephones for you uh, young people, generation z or whatever uh, they're the things that used to have in your home you know when you would want to talk on the phone i probably lost you at this point but anyways uh <laughs> anyways um you know so those were some of the people that he had but he would basically he would, not only would he create blueprints for new technology he would also uh be offered grants to work on um ideas for companies so that's where he made most of his money from he wasn't super rich but he was pretty well off in the fact that he had freedom unlike most of us who have to work a nine-to-five job and one of his favorite hobbies was actually just reading books um i believe in the book um the unicorn secret which was written by stephen levy as i mentioned uh he said that his apartment had a huge one of his walls was just filled with books it was a huge bookcase that was just the wall, you couldn't see the wall. It was just filled with books. Um, so he told anyone and everyone that it was a conspiracy theory by the CIA or FBI who wanted to discredit him and halt his political activities. Then on the 21st of January, 1981, Einhorn skipped bail on the eve of the pretrial hearing and disappeared, probably to Europe. Thus began the most determined international pursuit of a fugitive since the Israel Mossad's hunt, capture and cross-border kidnapping of Nazi war criminal Adolf Ekman, who I might be doing an episode about in the future. Conducting the manhunt was Assistant District Attorney Richard D. Benedito, who through Einhorn's 60 handwritten journals knew his prey better than anyone else. In 1985, Einhorn was traced to Dublin, Ireland, where he was living under the name of Ben Moore. However, there were no extradition papers in effect, and Einhorn fled Dublin after the alert, after he was aware that, you know, Interpol was after him. From there, he probably traveled throughout the un I'm sorry, traveled throughout the United Kingdom, crossing the English Channel at some point to enter continental Europe. In nineteen ninety-three, the unprecedented step in Philadelphia at least was taken to try Einhorn in absentia, a hugely significant development that would later be exploited by Einhorn. He was convicted of murder and sentenced to life imprisonment. Because one of the interesting things about Ira Einhorn was that he was actually, I hate to say this about him because he's a fucking criminal and murderer, but he was very brilliant and really smart. It was even said by his mom. But of course, every mother's going to see their child as some brilliant 
uh, probably not my mom, but <laughs> but most mothers see their children as like some god child that was a fucking prodigy. But his mother really truly believed that because in the book, The Unicorn's Secret, there's a passage about when she first discovered like his brilliance, which was um, she used to play the game Bridge. And because um, Ira Ironhorn actually has a brother that's hardly mentioned at all because he's just overshadowed by his brother's accomplishments and the fact that his brother's a murderer. But uh, the mom was talking about the first time she realized his, his genius was when uh, he was only six, I think, six years old. And she would she loved playing the game Bridge with uh, friends of hers that she had. And um, one day her son was interested. So he happened to grab a book that teaches you how to play the game bridge. And she said he only read it for about maybe 10 minutes and he put the book down and said, Oh, I'm ready to play the game bridge. And she's like, are you sure? It's kind of a hard game. And he's like, no mother, I, I really know how to play bridge. And so she played with him and he fucking beat her and stuff. Well, and not beat her, but I think he was challenging her enough. But anyways, I digress. So um, <clears throat> he was convicted of murder and sentenced to life imprisonment. Circa 1994, D. Benedito learned that Einhorn's benefactor, Barbara Bromfman, had been financing his flight from his hunters. Now, remember, Barbara Bromfman was that chick who married into wealth because she married a distillery family. She was actually funding most of his trips throughout of Europe, through all out of Europe. So she was actually helping him. She was basically aiding and abetting and had been financing his flight from his hunters. However, she had a change of heart to one in the belief of Einhorn's guilt, and she provided Benedito, the man who was hunting him down, with the Stockholm address where Einhorn was residing. The address turned up one Aninka, Ananka, Anika, I'm going to say Anika Floden because it's spelled A-N-N-I-K-A, who disclaimed all knowledge of Einhorn, saying that she knew him as Ben Moore, which was the alias he was using throughout all of Europe and that she had no idea where he was. When Floden subsequently disappeared, however, investigators ran her name through Interpol and found that she had relocated to France and married Einhorn, who was then known under the moniker of Eugene Malin. So this guy was like Carmen Sandiego in a fucking way. On June 13th of 1997, D. Benedito and his men arrested Einhorn in a converted millhouse outside Champagne, Molten, a beautiful village in the French countryside near Cognac. Or Cognac. I want to say it's Cognac. So during the trial, Einhorn enlisted the services of Ted Simon, an expert in international law and a brilliant attorney, to fight the extradition process. Simon did so by citing established rules of the European Convention of Human Rights, or ECHR, to which France is a party and an active defender. The rules deny the legitimacy of trials in absentia, especially when the maximum sentence is life imprisonment. In French and European jurisprudence, trials in absentia deny the suspect the right to defend himself in a court of law and make a mockery of the presumption of innocence, the, corner, the cornerstones of any justice legal system. So all of that is just a bunch of legal mumbo-jumbo, and essentially what that means is that European laws do not allow you to extradite a wanted criminal back to American soil if they are not going to have a fair trial. So what they're saying is because basically what was going to, what was going to happen for Ira Einhorn was that once he was extradited back to the American U S 
he was just going to be placed under arrest and just serve his life imprisonment term. And I guess French law doesn't like that. <laughs> They're like, no, 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 we don't do that here. Basically, what they do is you have to have a retrial. But then American law has that whole double jeopardy law where you can't be tried for the same thing twice. It's it's they conflict with each other pretty much. In addition, under the ECHR, France is prevented from deporting or extraditing anyone within its borders to a country where they are not guaranteed a fair trial. See, told you. Under the existing Pennsylvania law, Einhorn would have had no recourse to a new trial and would have been imprisoned immediately under the terms of the 1993 sentence upon his arrival back on American soil. Simon demonstrated that Einhorn would not have been granted a new trial and, at the time, enjoyed little to no appellate rights. The extradition application failed in the French courts, and on December 4, 1997, Einhorn was released back into the European population. So, to say the least, Ted Simon was fucking good at his job, and he basically used that loophole to get Ira Einhorn off the hook, and he was not, <laughs> he was not extradited. In January of 1998, the Pennsylvania legislator passed a new law that granted a previously tried and condemned man a new trial. Einhorn was rearrested and placed on bail to await a new extradition hearing. At that hearing, Simon countered using established American constitutional principles of the doctrine of separation of powers, essentially arguing that it went against all notions of good governance and the rule of law for a legislator to interfere with the final judgment of the judiciary. Oh my god. (laughs) In other words, a lawmaking body can never direct a court to change its judgment, nor can it direct a retrial after the initial trial has been finalized. So essentially what they're saying is that the whole double jeopardy thing, like you can't be retried for the same thing twice, and they're saying that... uh, Actually, I'll just continue on because it's going to basically explain it. A second point of contention that was brought up by Ted Simon, the attorney for Ira Einhorn, was that the new Pennsylvania law, the so-called Einhorn law, which what it was dubbed, appeared to have been enacted to firstly retrospectively apply in Einhorn's case, and secondly, appeared to have little general application outside of Einhorn's case, both of which offended principles of the rule of law. A law cannot retrospectively apply to just one person, nor should a law target a specific person or case. So basically, he was showing, like, like he's like, oh, you guys want to make this new law? Well, I'm going to fucking fuck you guys up in, in the court of law. You basically cannot make a law centered around one person. The second extradition hearing ended with the French court declaring itself incompetent to hear arguments relating to the constitutionality of foreign laws. In other words, the French were basically just getting tired of dealing with these Americans and they didn't want to keep hearing the problems of one man and their constant trying to capture him and arrest him and trying to extradite him. So they're kind of getting tired of all this shit, to say the least. The decision, therefore, went to French Prime Minister Lionel Jospin or Jospin, since an extradition must be ordered by the executive after being approved by the courts. On July 21st, of the year 2000, Jospin eventually agreed to the extradition and was roundly criticized for having succumbed to political pressure from America. French people did not like that he was basically being a pussy and giving into what the Americans wanted because for some reason, even though we saved their ass in World War II, 
they don't like Americans, <laughs> including American President Bill Clinton, who had previously intervened when he wasn't busy fucking Monica Lewinsky. <laughs> Too soon? Meanwhile, Einhorn's lawyers appealed to the Conseil d'État. I'm not sure if I said that right because it's French, but the highest French court of law and Anika Einhorn, his wife, canvassed the support of a wide spectrum of human rights organizations, including heavyweights like Helsinki Watch and SOS Racine. The appeal to the Conseil d'État failed, as did the final appeals to both courts of the European Court of Human Rights on July 18, 2001. Einhorn, in a fit of just desperation and not knowing what to do because he did not want to be extradited back to the U.S., he publicly slit his throat in front of television cameras after the Conseil d'État decision. Although he suffered little damage as he had only used a butter knife, um, I, it's not said, but I, I really desperately want to know what type of butter knife it was, if it was plastic or if it was, um, uh, metal because it's a butter knife and those don't really cut things. But on the 21st of July, 2001, Einhorn returned to the United States via Philadelphia International Airport to stand trial for the murder of Helen Holly Maddox. But how did he even get the butter knife? They, and that's what I hate because sometimes they don't really say that information. And me, I'm one that wants to know, and that just sucks. I wonder if he had it up his ass. <laughs> the murder trial itself was relatively straightforward after the years of legal wrangling that had preceded it. The prosecution amassed a body of circumstantial evidence against Einhorn, including the corpse found in his apartment. They also led him in cross-examination to read large portions of his diaries, um, which gave insight to his violent and misogynistic character. Ira Einhorn, especially in the book, uh, The Unicorn's Secret, which was written by Stephen Levy, I'm going to keep plugging that book because that's where I got most of my information and research from, was uh, there's actually little snippets of the uh, journal too that Ira Einhorn kept. But after uh, Ira Einhorn and Holly Maddox broke up and they officially ended the relationship in 1977, but after they broke up and or no, I don't think it was in 1977. I don't remember exactly when they broke up, but I know it's somewhere in the book. But he kept a lot of diaries to write his thoughts down because he kind of felt like he was some sort of like poet or something. But there was a, a, a little snippet that he had where he said uh, he had a, a vision where he, he and Holly were in a theater and they were staring at each other and not the movie. Their attention were on each other. This is kind of what he was saying. And that there was people in the theater but as soon as their lips touched each other and they felt a warm embrace it was like as if they were the only ones in that theater but that's some of the stuff he said but then as he started going on he then suddenly realized that he wanted to hurt her and beat her and stuff like that but that's what he said the defense tried the ploy of having the trial dismissed as the einhorn law was unconstitutional arguing that the law violated the protection against double jeopardy that is being tried twice for the same crime, but the judge refused to hear arguments on the constitutionality of the trial. The defense also tried to introduce reasonable doubt that Einhorn had committed the murder, claiming that he had been out of the apartment for several months in 1978 and that it was impossible for the body to have been sneaked in to frame. I mean, sorry, that it was possible for the body to have been sneaked in to frame their client. Einhorn, when asked to enter his defense, claimed that he had been framed by the CIA or KGB. After only four weeks, on October 17, 2002, 
a racially mixed jury of six men and six women found Ira Einhorn guilty of the murder of Holly Maddox in 1977. Judge William Mazzola sentenced Einhorn to life in prison without parole, and he is currently incarcerated at Holtzdale State Prison in Pennsylvania. And it's pretty crazy to think about it that he was able to just escape for so long, although he never committed any crime. Well, not that I know of, but he was able to, uh, I, in the book, it was said by, oh, no, no, not the book. I think I found another, um, there was another article that I found when I was doing research after reading the book. Uh, one of one of the people, one of the detectives said, had he had just pleaded, pled guilty to his crime, he would have just served his sentence. They were, If he pled guilty, they would have given him a lighter sentence and they he would have served his term already and he would have just been out but he didn't he ran and so now he has to serve life in prison so thus ended the manhunt of one of the most famous cultural and political icons of his time and einhorn was finally brought to justice for the crime he had committed however the debate still rages on whether or not he should have been brought to the trial in the first place the arguments put forward by his lawyers Ted Simon and Norris Guildman at the French extradition hearings were impeccably sound based upon trite principles of a just legal system that one should always have the right to represent and defend oneself and the presumption of innocent must always be preserved. So in other words, there was he he was saying that basically even though what Ira Einhorn is being uh, was convicted of is a very heinous crime and it's a murder, but that he does feel that even though he did what he did or that he was found guilty of what he did in the court of law was that he still thinks that Ira Einhorn wasn't truly given a fair trial because the laws that we do have weren't probably they weren't properly used, I guess, in a way, but. That is all I have for the first case, which is Ira Einhorn, the unicorn killer. Like I said, it's it's not that great. The one you're really here for is Peter Curtin. Believe me, that one is the one you really want to hear. So if you made it to this part, congratulations. But I found this case to be somewhat interesting um, because honestly, before even doing the research for Ira Einhorn, I really knew nothing about the unicorn killer. I always just knew him of the unicorn killer i just never knew what the actual case was all about i thought the unicorn killer was this guy who killed dozens of people but apparently <laughs> the name sounds a lot better than what actually went on i mean it still sucks you know of what happened but even more um what what they talked about in the book the unicorn secret um the family uh holly maddox's mother and father it sucks because uh, Fred Maddox actually killed himself in 1988 and Elizabeth Maddox, her mother, died of emphysema in 1990. So it sucks because not only did they lose their daughter, they didn't really get to enjoy the rest of their days, which is sad. But, I mean, that's what happens when, you know, a family suffers a tremendous loss as such as they did. But let's move on to the next case. That is Peter Curtin, the Vampire of Dusseldorf. So we're going to the next case, and that is here. Okay, I, I guess before we get into it, this is your warning, your fucking warning. 
that if you're very uncomfortable with uh, with uh, rape, if you're uncomfortable with child molestation, then this is not for you. So this is your warning. I don't like saying trigger warning, even though I just said it. I just, I'm sorry. I just think it's foolish to say trigger warning. But this is your warning that if you're uncomfortable with uh, rape and and murder, this is not for you. But for the people that are fucked up like me and I want to hear this shit, this next case is of Peter Curtin. He's a German serial killer who was dubbed the Vampire of Dusseldorf, the Boogeyman of Dusseldorf, or the Dusseldorf Monster. And he committed a series of murders and sexual assaults between February and November of 1929 in the city of, yes, you guessed it, Dusseldorf. So, Peter Curtin was born into a poverty-stricken, abusive family in Merchheim am Rhein, on the 26th May of 1883, he was the third of 13 children, two of whom died at an early age due to illnesses. And Curtin's parents were both alcoholics who lived in a one-bedroom apartment. Curtin's father frequently beat his wife and children, particularly when he was very drunk. When intoxicated, Curtin's father often forced his wife and children to assemble in one room before ordering his wife to strip naked and engage in intercourse with him as his children watched in fear. Now this would be a tribute this would attribute later on to the perversions that Peter developed as he began to grow up. And it's fucking crazy because he would <laughs> he would literally have his wife perform sexual acts while the children were awake and stuff because I mean, you know, I get it sometimes you you know got to get yours but you should usually wait when your children are asleep or preoccupied in another room but they lived in a very poor area in germany and the father would while drunk force force the kids to to watch as he would pleasure his wife he was jailed for 15 months in 1894 for committing incest with the eldest daughter who was age only 13, and shortly thereafter, Curtin's mother obtained a separation order because I guess that was the final straw. It took for him to sexually molest their eldest daughter for her to finally do something about it, and later remarried and relocated to Dusseldorf. In 1888, Curtin attempted to drown one of his playmates. Four years later, he befriended a local dog catcher who lived in the same building as his family, and began accompanying him on his rounds. The individual often tortured and killed the animals he caught, and Curtin soon became an active and willing participant in torturing animals. He enjoyed watching the dog catcher and was readily wanting to help the dog catcher torture and kill the animals, which is really fucked up, (laughs) but that's usually how most serial killers go. Being the eldest surviving son, Curtin was the target of much of his father's physical abuse. Although he was a good student, he later recollected his academic performance suffered due to the extensive physical violence he endured from his father. He frequently refused to return home from school. From an early age, Curtin often ran away from home for periods of time ranging from days to weeks. Much of the time Curtin spent on the streets was in the company of petty criminals and social misfits. He, he 
basically befriended the criminal, like, well, I, I don't really, well, obviously they're criminals because they would just, you know, steal what they needed. But for the most part, it's because he was living on the streets, homeless, and he just wanted to survive. And he felt like his true family were the little gangs of little children, other criminal children that he would, you know, survive with on the mean streets of Dusseldorf. I, Dusseldorf, it almost sounds like a Harry Potter fucking city. Via these acquaintances, Curtin was introduced to various forms of petty crime, which he initially committed as a means of feeding and clothing himself when living on the streets. He later claimed to have committed his first murder at the age of nine, when he pushed a school friend who he knew was unable to swim off a log raft. When a second boy attempted to save the drowning youngster, Curtin held this boy's head underwater in order that both boys would drown. Both deaths were ruled by authorities as being accidental. When he was questioned by the police, he simply said, oh, it was just an accident. I didn't mean to do that. At the age of 13, Curtin formed a relationship with a girl with a girl his age, who, although happy to allow Curtin to undress and fondle her, would resist any attempts he made to engage in intercourse. She would just let him touch the goods. He just couldn't get the whole cookie jar. To relieve his sexual urges, Curtin resorted to acts of bestiality. You heard that correct. With sheep and pigs and goats in local stables, but later claimed he obtained his greatest sense of elation if he actually stabbed these animals just before he ejaculated. So the only way he could fully achieve like the best orgasm was he would actually stab or slit the throats of the animals as he was fucking them. So this is when he st truly started his perversions. Thus, he began stabbing and slashing animals with increasing frequency to achieve orgasm. Although he was adamant this behavior ended when he was observed stabbing a pig because one day um, he was caught by a farmer because he would sneak into other people's like farms and stables. I guess he was caught and supposedly he said he stopped doing it, but he was lying. He didn't really stop. He also attempted to rape the same sister his father had earlier molested. He tried to rape his own oldest sister. In 1897, Curtin left school at his father's insistence. He obtained employment as an apprentice molder. The apprenticeship lasted for two years before Curtin stole all the money he could find in his household, plus approximately 300 marks from his employer and ran away from home. He relocated to Colbenez. Coblenz where he began a brief relationship with a prostitute. He claimed willingly submitted to every form of sexual perversion he demanded of her. He was apprehended just four weeks later and charged with both breaking and entering and theft and subsequently sentenced to one month's imprisonment. And he was released from prison in August of 1899 and reverted to the life of petty crime he'd lived before his arrest. So he just got out and went back to doing the same shit that got him in there. So his first murder he committed. Curtin claimed to have committed his first murder in November of 1899. In his 1930 confession to investigators, Curtin claimed to have picked up an 18-year-old girl at Alistrab and persuaded her to accompany him to Hofengarten, where he claimed to have engaged in sex with the girl before strangling her to death with his bare hands. 
although he said and he claimed this while after he was eventually captured and arrested, there's been no records or any police records whatsoever of this actually happening. He just said this to both um, investigators and to a cellmate, I guess, that he was with. Nonetheless, Curtin later stated that via his committing this act, he had proven to himself that the greatest heights of sexual ecstasy only could have been only could be achieved in this matter. So in other words, the only way he could truly reach like orgasmic ejaculation and sexual ecstasy was by committing sadistic acts on women or whoever he was fucking. Shortly thereafter in the 1900 Kern in 1900 Kern was arrested for fraud. He would be rearrested later the same year on the same charge, although on this second occasion Charges pertaining to his 1899 Dusseldorf deaths, plus the attempted murder of a girl with a firearm were added to the indictment. Consequently, Curtin was sentenced to four years imprisonment in October of 1900. He served the sentence in Derendorf, a borough of Dusseldorf. Released in the summer of 1904, Curtin was drafted into the German army. He was deployed to Alation city of Metz to serve in the 98th Infantry Regiment, although he soon deserted. The, uh, that autumn, Curtin began committing acts of arson, which he would discreetly watch from a distance as emergency services attempted to extinguish the fires. The majority of these fires were in barns and haylofts, and Curtin would esti estimate to police he had committed approximately 24 acts of arson upon his arrest that New Year's Eve. He also freely admitted that these fires had been committed both for his sexual excitement and in the hopes of burning sleeping tramps alive. So, touching more on that, when he would commit these arsons, he would be literally fucking hiding in a bush, like, watching the firefighters trying to put the fire out, hoping that people were dying in the buildings, and he would also fucking jack off while he was seeing the panic and everybody and there was even one time too where there was a fire and he actually told the police that he saw the culprit who started it and he ran off that way and that gave him even more pleasure of knowing that he lied to the police as a result of this of his desertion Curtin was tried by the military system and convicted of desertion in addition to multiple counts of arson, robbery, and attempted robbery, the latter charges pertaining to acts he also committed that year, and imprisoned from 1905 to 1913. Curtin served his sentence in Munster with much of his time spent in solitary confinement for repeating instances of insubordination. He would later claim to investigators and psychologists this period of incarceration was that in which he first encountered severe forms of discipline. And as such, the erotic fantasies he had earlier developed while incarcerated in Derendorf expanded to include graphic fantasies of striking out at society and killing masses of people. These fantasies became ever more paramount and overbearing in his mind, and Curtin later claimed that he derived the sort of pleasure from these visions that other people would get from thinking about a naked woman, adding that he could uh, he that he would occasionally spontaneously ejaculate while preoccupied with such thoughts. So when he was in solitary confinement in his room, because for the naive that don't know what solitary confinement is, solitary confinement in prisons is where they stick you in what they call the hole, and it's a room that's like no bigger than a king size bed. 
That's how big the room is. There's no windows. The only light, sometimes there's not even light in those rooms. You just sit there in the dark. And this is where a lot of people claim that they'll begin to hear voices, they'll hallucinate, and it will happen because as humans, we're very social creatures. We want, and when you, when you're cut off from social activity, you can start to develop serious mental problems. Um, so, you know, like I said, we're social creatures. We have to have social contact, speak to other people. But when he was cut off from society and not speaking to anyone, this is when he began having visions. And some of the visions he claimed he would have is he would see a naked woman in his room standing there and he would gaze at her. But what would happen was she would begin cutting herself and she would cut herself open, seeing her entrails spill out. And he said those were the best times because that's those are the times when he would spontaneously fucking come. And just seeing, that's when he knew that the only way for him to achieve um, orgasms or fucking come would be hurting people or seeing people hurt. The first murder that Curtin was actually had definitively committed occurred on 25th of May, 1913. During the course of a burglary at a tavern in the town of Molheim and Rhein, he encountered a nine-year-old girl named Christine Klein asleep in her bed. Now, again, this is another warning for you. What I'm about to describe to you is very graphic, so if you do not feel comfortable hearing this, my suggestion to you is to stop listening to this or to click off and go listen to another much happier episode. So... He strangled the child, who again was only a nine-year-old girl, then slashed her twice across the throat with only a pocket knife. As he did this, he claimed he ejaculate he ejaculated as he heard the blood dripping from her wounds onto the floor by her bed. The following day, Curtin specifically returned to Cologne to drink in a tavern located directly opposite that in which he murdered Christine Klein. In order, in order that he could listen to the locals' reaction to the child's murder, so that got him off even more. Was le- like hearing, like just the local people inside that tavern drinking, talking about the murder. It, it fucking gave him a boner. He loved it. He later recollected the invest to investigators that he derived an extreme sense of gratification from the general disgust, repulsion, and outrage he had heard in the patrons' conversations. In the weeks following Klein's funeral, he occasionally traveled to Molheim and Rhein to visit the child's grave, adding that when he handed the soil, when he handled the soil in which she was buried in, he spontaneously ejaculated. So like I said, this guy was seriously fucked up. He was a sexual pervert that just loved what he was doing. I mean, he he fucking jizzed his pants when he held the soil of the little girl's grave, okay? This guy was fucked up. Two months later, again in the course of committing a burglary with the aid of a skeleton key, Curtin broke into the home in Los Shecks, discovering a 17-year-old girl named Gertrude Franken. Curtin manually strangled the girl, ejaculating at the sight of blood spurting from her mouth. Curtin managed to escape from the scene of both this murder and that of the nine-year-old girl, Klein, Christine Klein, undetected. Just days after the murder of Gertrude Franken, on on July 14th, 
Kern was arrested for a series of arson attacks and burglaries. He was sentenced to six years imprisonment, although his repeated instances of insubordination while in prison saw his incarceration extended by a further two years. Curtin served this sentence in a military prison in the town of Berg, then part at the time was part of the German Empire. He was released back in April of 1921. Curtin re- relocated to Ottenburg, where he initially lived with his sister. Through his sister, Curtin became acquainted with a woman three with a woman three years older than him named Augustus Scharf a sweet shop proprietor and former prostitute who had previously been convicted of shooting her fiancé to death, allegedly, and to whom Curtin initially posed a former prisoner of war. Although the couple regularly engaged in healthy sex, Curtin later admitted he could consummate that he could only consummate his marriage only by fantasizing about committing violence against another individual. So whenever they would have sex, the only way he would be able to come is if he was thinking or fantasizing about him either hurting another woman or another individual or probably fucking a sheep that he used to fuck. (sighs) I'm telling you, this guy's one fucked up dude. And it doesn't end there. We've only touched on a few of the fucked up shit that he's done. It gets worse. It gets a lot worse. So you think it's bad now. Oh, boy, are you in for a fucking surprise. <sighs> After their wedding night, he engaged in intercourse with his wife only at her invitation. For the first time in his life, Kern obtained regular employment, also, become an, also becoming an active trades union official, although with the exception of his wife, he formed no close friendships. He was a loner. In 1925, he returned with his wife to Dusseldorf, where he soon began affairs with a servant girl named, I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name right, but it's T-I-E-D-E, so Teed, Taid, or Taid, I don't know, and a housemaid named Mech. When his wife discovered his infidelity, Curtin served six months of his sentence with his early release being upon the condition he relocated to Dusseldorf. On February 3rd, 1929, Curtin stalked an elderly woman named Apolina Kuhn, Kuhn, I think that's how you pronounce it, waiting until Kuhn was shielded from the view of potential witnesses by bushes. Curtin pounced upon her, grabbing her by the lapels of her coat and shouting the words, no, bro. Wait, that doesn't sound fucking German. No, bro. Don't scream. That doesn't sound German either. I need to work on my German accent. Before dragging her into nearby undergrowth, where he proceeded to stab her 24 times with a sharpened pair of scissors. And this would be a weapon of choice that he would use for a few other murders. Although many of the wounds he inflicted were so deep that they impacted her bones. Okay, that's how deep they were. Kuhn survived her injuries. On February 8th, he strangled another nine-year-old girl named Rosa Olinger into unconsciousness before stabbing her in the stomach, temple, genitals, and heart with a pair of scissors, spontaneously ejaculating as he knifed the child and inserting, inserting inserting his semen into her vagina with his fingers. Like I said, it gets worse. 
He then made a rudimentary effort to hide Olinger's body by dragging it beneath a hedge. Before returning to the scene with a bottle of kerosene several hours later and setting Rosa Olinger's body on fire. And he achieved an orgasm at the sight of the flames. <laughs> oh my god. Olinger's body was found beneath a hedge the following day. On February 13th, he murdered a 45 year old mechanic named Rudolf Scheer in the suburb of Fillingnod stabbing him 20 times, particularly about the head, back, and his eyes. Following the discovery of Shear's body, Curtin returned to the scene of the murder to converse with police, falsely informing one detective he had heard about the murder via telephone. And again, as um, doing the research, reading about that, as he told the police officer that, he said he had, a, basically he had a fucking boner when he told the police that, and the police believed him. He was, it was weird because he, he, he really got off on, like, fucking with the police, and he thought he was kind of smarter than the police because he the perpetrator was right in front of him, yet they never did anything, or they never knew. So he kind of got off on that as well. Despite the differences in age and sex of these three victims, the fact that all three crimes had been committed in the Flingham district of Dusseldorf at dusk, that each victim had received a multitude of stab wounds likely inflicted in rapid succession and invariably involving, invol involving at least one wound to the temple, plus the absence of a common motive such as robbery, led investigators to conclude the same perpetrator had committed all three attacks. Furthermore, the seemingly random selection of these victims led crim crimino criminologists to remark as to the abnormal nature of the perpetrator. Although Curtin did attempt to strangle four women between March and July of 1929, one of whom he claimed to have thrown into the Rhine River, he is not known to have killed any further victims until August 11th, where he raped, strangled, then repeatedly stabbed a young woman named Maria Hahn. Kern had first encountered Hahn, whom he described as a girl looking for marriage, on August 8th, and had arranged to take her on a date to ne Neanderthal district of Dusseldorf. I know I'm fucking up these German fucking names but i mean come on the following sunday after several hours in hans company kurt lured her into a meadow in order in order that he could kill her he later admitted han had repeatedly pleaded with him to spare her life as he alternately strangled her stabbed her in the chest and head or sat astride her body waiting for her to die after he stabbed her he let her drop to the ground and she he was just watching her bleed out, and she was just pleading for her life at that point. Han died approximately one hour after Kern had begun attacking her. Fearful his wife might connect the bloodstains she had noted on his clothes with Han's murder, Kern later buried her body in a cornfield, only to return to her body several weeks later with the intention of nailing her decomposing remains to a tree in a mock crucifixion to shock and disgust the public. Because again, Peter Curtin loved getting off on the fact that people found these murders disgusting. Okay. And the more that people talked about them, the more that there was publications and newspapers about them, it just fueled him more to keep going on because that's what fucking got him off. Because going back to earlier when he was in solitary confinement, it was so almost like he was, he had this epiphany 
where he wanted to just make society disgusted by what he was doing. And that's what he got off on. However, Han's remains proved too heavy for Curtin to complete this act. And he simply returned her corpse to her grave before embracing and caressing the decomposing body as he lay beneath her remains. So he was, he had her dead decomposing body on top of him as he laid there, probably fucking jerking off. He then reburied Han's body. And according to Curtin, according to his confession, both before and after he attempted to impale Han's corpse to a tree, he said, I went to the grave many times and kept improving on it. And every time I sought of what was lying there and was filled with, I was filled with satisfaction. That's what he said in a confession after he was finally caught. Three months after Curtin had murdered Maria Han, he posted an anonymous letter to the police in which he confessed to Han's murder, adding that her remains had been buried in a field. In this letter, Curtin also drew a crude map describing the location of her remains. This letter would prove significantly detailed to enable investigators to locate Han's remains on November 15th. Following the murder of Maria Han, Curtin changed his choice of weapon from scissors to a knife in an apparent effort to convince police more than one perpetrator was responsible for the assaults and murders. So in the early morning of August 21st, Peter Curtin randomly stabbed an 18-year-old girl, a 30-year-old man, and a 37-year-old woman in separate attacks. All three were seriously wounded and all stated to the police their assailant had not spoken a word to them before he had attacked them. Three days later, at a fairground in the suburb of Feli, or Flehi, Flehi, <laughs> he observed two foster sisters who were aged 5 and 14 walking from the fairground through adjoining atollments en route to their home. He sent the older girl, which her name was Louise Lenzen, Lenzen, yeah, on an errand to purchase cigarettes for him upon the promise of being given 20 pefnik, or pefnik, which was the currency at the time because of the German Empire, or German Empire currency, I guess, if you will. Uh, Peter Curtin lifted the younger child, who again was only five years old. Her name was Gertrude Hamacher. Hamacher, I guess. Hamacher? I'm not sure. It's fucking German. Off the ground by her neck and strangled her into unconsciousness before cutting her throat and discarding her body in a patch of runner beans. When Lenzen, the older sister, when Luis returned to the scene, Kern partially strangled her before stabbing her in the torso with one of the wounds piercing her piercing god I'm sorry it's just because fuck dude it's pretty brutal with one of them being one of the one of the stabbings pierced her aorta <sighs> fuck but it, this is what I mean it's going to get worse right now not only doing that stabbing her in the aorta he also bit and slit her throat twice, once for the initial slash, and then twice to open up the wound further, okay, before sucking her blood from her throat. Neither girl had actually been sexually assaulted, so, I mean, I guess that's good. 
and 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 it turns out that um, when police discovered the bodies, they noticed the footprints that were found were actually within seven meters of um, Luis's body, which meant, which suggested that she may have attempted to flee from Peter Curtin before she actually collapsed from bleeding out. The following day, Peter Curtin accosted a 27-year-old housemaid named Gertrude Schult, whom he openly asked to engage in sex with him. So basically, he walked up to her and he was like, Hey, um, you look pretty good. Would you like to maybe um, come with me to the back of this alley? And if you could possibly pretend you're a sheep, that'd be very wunderbar, yeah? <laughs> But she um, actually rebuffed his affections, and when she did, Peter shouted, Velsdizen! before repeatedly stabbing the woman in the head, neck, shoulder, and back. Luckily for Schultz, she survived her injuries, although she was unable to provide investigators with a clear description of Peter beyond assuming his age to be around 40 years old. Curtin attempted to murder two further victims, one by strangulation and another by stabbing in September. Before Peter, good old Peter, decided it was time to upgrade in his weaponry. On the evening of September 30th, Curtin encountered a 30-year-old one servant girl named Ida Ruder at Dusseldorf Station. I want to say it's Dusseldorf. I've been pronouncing it Dusseldorf, but it might be Dusseldorf. I feel like Dusseldorf sounds like that's how it's properly said. <clears throat> Anyways, he successfully persuaded Ruder to accompany him to a cafe, then for a walk through the local Hofengarten, close to the Rhine River. At this location, he repeatedly struck Ruder on her head with a hammer, both before and after he had raped her. At one point in his assault... Ruder regained consciousness and began pleading with Curtin to spare her life. In response, Curtin said, I'll give you another hammer and blows on the head and I'll misuse you. Eleven days later, on October 11th, he encountered a 22-year-old servant girl named Elizabeth Dorier outside a theater. As had been with the case with Ruder, Dorier agreed to accompany Curtin to, for a drink at a cafe before the pair took a train to Grafenberg, where there was a view to walk alongside the Klein Dussel River, where she was struck once across her right temple with a hammer. Then, like the other victim, he raped her as well. Curtin struck Elizabeth repeatedly about the head and both temples with his hammer and left her for dead. Dorier was found at 6.30 a.m. the following morning, although she died from her injuries the following day without awaking from a coma in which she was discovered. She was, when, she, when her body was discovered, she was in a coma, um, so she technically was alive, but not really, I guess, if you will. Um, she later died in, while she was still in a coma. On October 25th, Curran attacked two women with a hammer, both, luckily for them, survived, although it still sucks they have to live with that shit that happened to them. Although in the second instance, the only reason why they did was because his hammer broke in the middle of attacking one of the victims. So he was hitting her that hard where the hammer just 
gave way. On November 7th, 1929, Curtin encountered a five-year-old girl named Gertrude, Gertrude Elberman in the Flingern district of Dusseldorf. He persuaded the child to accompany him to a section of deserted allotments where he seized her by her throat and strangled her, stabbing her once in the left temple with a pair of scissors as he did so. When Albertman collapsed to the ground without a sound, Curtin stabbed the child 34 more times in the temple and chest before leaving the poor girl's body in a pile of nettles against a factory wall. By the late summer of 1929, the murders committed by Peter, the press had dubbed in the news articles and magazines, they dubbed him the Vampire of Dusseldorf, were receiving considerable national and international attention. Due to the sheer savagery of the murders, the diverse background of the victims, and the differing methods in which they had been assaulted and or murdered, both the police and the press theorize that the assaults and murders were the work of more than one perpetrator. So good old Peter Curtin's plan actually worked. He made people believe that more than one person was committing these heinous crimes. By the end of 1929, Dusseldorf police had received more than 13,000 letters from the public. With assistance from surrounding police forces, each lead was painstakingly pursued. As a result of this collective investigation into the killings, more than 9,000 individuals were interviewed. 2,650 other clues painstakingly pursued as well, and a list of 900,000 different names were compiled upon an official potential suspect list. Two days after the murder of Gertrude Alberman, a local communist newspaper received a map revealing the location of the grave of Maria Hahn. In this drawing, Peter Kern also re revealed precisely where he had left Alberman's body, which had been found earlier that day, describing the exact position of her corpse, which he stated can be found face down amongst the bricks and rubble. An analysis of the handwriting revealed the author was the same individual who had anonymous anonymously informed police in a letter dated back in October 14th that he had killed Han and buried her body at the edge of the woods. Each letter Kern had thus far sent to newspapers and police describing his exploits and threatening further assaults and murders was examined by graphologists, who confirmed the same individual had written each letter, thus leading Ernest Gennett, chief inspector of Berlin police, to conclude that one man, was responsible for all of the assaults and murders. The murder of Gertrude Alberman proved to be Curtin's final fatal attack. Although he did engage in a spate of non-fatal hammer attacks and attempted strangulations between February and May of 1930, maiming 10 victims in these insults, all recipients survived and many were able to describe their attacker to police. On May 14, 1930, an unknown man approached a 20-year-old woman named Maria Buldick, Buldick at Dusseldorf Station. Discovering Buldick had traveled to Dusseldorf from Köln in search of lodgings and employment, this individual had offered to direct her towards a local hostel. Buldick agreed to follow this individual, although she became apprehensive when the man attempted to lead her through a scarcely populated park. The pair began to argue whereupon another man approached the duo 
asking whether Bud Budlick or Bootlick was being pestered by her companion. When Bootlick nodded, the individual with whom she had been arguing with simply walked away. The identity of this of the man who ostensibly came to Bullock's aid was Peter Curtin. Curtin invited the distressed young woman to his apartment on Met Manor Strabe to eat and drink before Bootlick, correctly deducing the underlying motive for Curtin's hospitality, stated she was uninterested in engaging sex with him. Curtin calmly agreed and offered to lead Bullock to a hotel. Although he insisted, although he instead lured her into the Grafenberg woods where he seized her by her throat and attempted to strangle her as he raped her. When Budlik began to scream, Kern released his grasp on her throat before allowing her to leave. Budlik did not report this assault to the police but described her ordeal in a letter to a friend. Although she addressed the letter incorrectly, as such, the letter was opened at the post office by a clerk on May 19th. Upon reading the contents of the letter, this clerk forwarded the letter to the Dusseldorf police. The letter was read by Chief Inspector Gernat, or Gennett, who deduced there was a slim chance Budlick's assailant might be the Dusseldorf murderer. Chief Inspector Gernat interviewed Budlick, who recounted her ordeal, further divulging one of the reasons Curtin had spared her was because she had falsely informed him she could not remember his address. She agreed to lead police to Curtin's home and led police to Curtin's Met Manor Strabe address. When the landlady of the property let Budlick into the room of 71 Met Manor Strabe, Budlick confirmed to Chief Inspector Ginnett this was indeed the address of her assailant. The landlady confirmed to Chief Inspector the tenant's name was Peter Curtin. Although Curtin was not home, when Budlick and Chief Inspector Gannett searched his property, he spotted the pair in the communal hallway and promptly left. Knowing that his identity was known to the police and suspecting they may also have connected him to the crimes committed by the vampire of Dusseldorf, Kern confessed to his wife he had raped Budlick and that because of his previous convictions, he may receive 15 years of penal labor. With his wife's consent, he found lodgings in the Alderstribe district of Dusseldorf, and did not return to his home until May 23rd. Upon returning home, Curtin confessed to his wife he was the vampire of Dusseldorf. With Curtin's full consent, he urged his wife to collect the substantial reward offered for his capture. Augustus Curtin contacted the police the following day, in the information provided to detectives, Curtin's wife explained that although she had known her husband had been repeatedly imprisoned in the past, she was unaware of his co compatibility in any murders. She then added that her husband had confessed to her his compatibility in the Dusseldorf murders and that he was willing to likewise confess to police. Furthermore, he was to meet her outside St. Ruchus Church later that day. That afternoon, Curtin was arrested at gunpoint. Curtin free, freely admitted his guilt in all the crimes police had attributed to the vampire of Dusseldorf, and further confessed he had committed the unsolved murder of Christine Klein and Gertrude Franken in 1913. In total, Curtin admitted to 68 crimes, including 10 murders and 31 attempted murders. 
He made no attempt to excuse his crimes, but justified them upon the basis of what he saw as the injustices he had endured throughout his life. Nonetheless, he was adamant he had not tortured any of his child victims. Oh, no. <laughs> I guess we'll let him off the hook, then. <laughs> Kern also admitted to both investigators and psychiatrists that the actual sight of his victim's blood was, on many occasions, sufficient to bring him to orgasm, and that on occasion, if he experienced ejaculation in the act of strangling a woman, he would immediately become apologetic to his victim, pro proclaiming that this is what he said, that's what love is all about, right? When you ejaculate from the sight of blood. He didn't say the last part, but that was just me. He further claimed to have drunk the blood from the throat of one victim, which you know was one of the children that he drank. But no, he didn't torture his fucking vic child victims. From the temple of another and, have, and to have licked the blood from a third victim's hands. In one of these instances, he had drunk so much blood from the neck wound he had inflicted upon victim Maria Han that he vomited. Kern also admitted to having decapitated a swan in the spring of 1930 in order that he could drink the blood from the animal's neck, achieving ejaculation in the process. <laughs> could you just imagine some of the fucking, like, like when the police were like, what, what, did the, what did your attacker look like? Do you have anything that we can go on? You know, I can't really think of the face. I can't really put a face to, you know, to the man. But one thing I do remember is that when he was running, I got to look at his pants, and he had a cum stain. <laughs> as Curtin awaited his trial, then later as he awaited his execution, he was extensively interviewed by Dr. Carl Berg. In these interviews, Curtin stated to Dr. P Berg that, was, that his primary motive in committing any form of criminal activity was one of sexual pleasure, and that he had begun to associate sexual excitement with violent acts and the sight of blood via indulging in both daydreams and masturbation fantasies, particularly when he had been isolated from human contact. Again, I'm like again to go back into um, solitary confinement. That's where he was. I'm not saying it's cool. Like he, I'm not saying like oh, you know, he's not a bad person. He's a fucking fucked up individual. But I'm just saying is that um, I'm probably going to be doing an episode in the near future about uh, the prison system and a particular case of um, a, a person who was, I guess, if you, I know I'm going off topic here, but the person, because I, I don't remember his name and I don't want to look it up, but it's a good story that I'm going to be doing the case about it in the future. But it's a story about this kid who I think was 16 at the time, or 20, I don't remember. Um, there's a documentary about it on Netflix, if you want to check it out. It was made by Jay-Z, um, and somebody else, I want to say, fucking, what's that dude's name, the director? Fuck, I don't remember. Spike Jones. Anyways, it was made by them, I think. Um, it's a pretty good documentary, but it's about how he was normal before he committed a petty crime, just a small, little small-time fucking crime. And he went into solitary confinement, and he was mentally sound and everything prior to going into solitary confinement. But then when he came out, he developed severe mental, like, he just suffered severely, ment like, mentally and had multiple mental illnesses after 
he was returned. He because he spent a uh, two years in solitary confinement, which sucks. Not only that, but his trial and everything was fucked up. But I completely went off topic. But I'm just saying, having being in solitary confinement can fuck you up, and it's really barbaric because it originally was started by Quakers. <laughs> and if you don't know what Quakers are, they're like a religious like group. I'm not gonna like super go into it, but yeah, that's they they started it. And the reason why they started solitary confinement was because they would put you in solitary confinement, and they would make you read the Bible. But they stopped doing it because every time they would do it, people would go like Jesus crazy, and they would think they were seeing God, and that God told them to do certain things, and it just made them worse, and not it wasn't for the better. Okay, so I'm done going off the topic. Back to the story of Peter Curtin. <laughs> the majority of his assaults and murders had been committed when his wife had been working evenings, and the number of stab or bludgeoning wounds Curtin inflicted upon each victim had varied depending upon the length of time it had taken him to achieve an orgasm. Furthermore, the actual sight of his victim's blood had been integral to his sexual stimulation. Curtin further elaborated to Dr. Berg that once he had committed an attack or murder, the feeling of tension he had experienced before the commission of the crime would be um, superseded by one of relief. In reference to the actual choice of weapon used in his attacks, Curtin stressed that although he had changed his actual method of attack to deceive investigators into believing they were seeking more than one perpetrator, the weapon he used was inconsequential in reference to his ultimate objective of seeing his victim's blood. Elaborating, Curtin stated, Sveza, I took a knife or a pair of scissors or a hammer in order to see blood was a matter of indifference to me or mere chance. Once after the hammer blows, the bleeding victims moved and struggled, just as they did when they were throttled. Curtin further confined that although he had cagedly penetrated his female victims, he had only done so to fiend the act of coitus as a motive for his crimes. So basically, he would only penetrate his victims just to make it seem like that's all he was going after was fucking the vagina but it wasn't. He wanted to see blood because that's the only way he could fucking come. He also confessed that many of his later strangulation victims had only survived his attacks because he had achieved orgasm in the early throes of the assault. So luckily for them, the reason why they survived was because for some reason strangling him just, bam, got his socks off and he just fucking splooged like right away. However, Curran contradicted these claims by proclaiming to both Dr. Berg and legal examiners that his primary motive in all his criminal activities was to both strike back at an oppressive society. Should I do that in the German voice? To strike back at an oppressive society. That did not sound German at all. For what he considered the injustice of his being repeatedly incarcerated throughout his life and as a form of revenge for the neglect and abuse he had endured as a child. These desires had fermented in his mind throughout the long periods he had been confined in solitary confinement for various forms of insubordination. And Peter Curtin explained that he deliberately broke minor prison rules as a means of guaranteeing that he would be sentenced to solitary confinement in, in order that he could be indulged in those psychosexual fantasies. So he would purposely break rules so that way he could get a chance to be in solitary confinement because that's when he experienced his fantasies where he would fucking 
jerk off and just splooge everywhere. To Dr. Berg and the legal examiners, Kern did not deny that he had sexually molested his female victims, or to have stroked or digitally penetrated their genitals as he stabbed, slashed, strangled, or bludgeoned their bodies. Although throughout his trial, Peter consistently claimed the sexual assault of his victims was not his primary motive. Both Berg and other psychologists concluded Kern was not insane and was fully able to control his actions and appreciated the criminality of his conduct. Each rule, Curtin was legally sane and competent to stand trial. So now we move on to the trial. On April 13, 1931, Peter Curtin stood trial in Dusseldorf. He was charged with nine counts of murder and seven of attempted murder, and was tried before presiding Judge Dr. Rose. Curtin pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity to each of the charges. Aside from when delivering testimony, Curtin would spend the duration of his trial surrounded by a heavily guarded shoulder-high iron cage, specifically constructed to protect him from attack by the enraged relatives of his victims, and his feet were shackled whenever he was inside this cage. Proceedings began with the prosecution formally reciting each of the charges against Curtin before they recited the formal confession he had provided to police following his arrest. When then asked by the preceding judge to describe why he had continued to commit acts of arson throughout 1929 and 1930, Curtin said, When my desire for injuring people awoke, the love of setting fire to things awoke as well. The sight of the flames excited me, but above all, it was... It was the excitement of the attempts to extinguish the fire and the agitation of those who saw their property being destroyed. Having first claimed that his initial confession had been delivered to simply allow his wife to recruit the reward offered for the capture of the Dusseldorf vampire. Several days into his trial, Kern instructed his defense attorney that he wished to change his plea to one of guilty. Addressing the court, Curtin proclaimed, I have no remorse. As to whether the recollection of my deeds makes me feel ashamed, I will tell you that thinking back to all the details is not at all unpleasant. I rather enjoy it. Further press as to whether he considered himself to possess consciousness, Curtin said, nonetheless, I'm sorry, uh, when he considered himself to possess consciousness, like if he, you know, Curtin stated he did not. Nonetheless, when pressed as to his motivation in confessing, Curtin reiterated, Why don't you understand that I am fond of my wife, and that I am still fond of her? I have done many wrongs, have been unfaithful over and over again. My wife has never done anything wrong. Even when she heard of the many prison sentences I have served, she said, I won't let you down. Otherwise, you'll be lost altogether. I wanted to fix for my wife a carefree old age. To counteract Curran's insanity defense, the prosecution introduced five of the most intimate doctors. I still can't have the German accent right there. It's psychiatrists in Germany to testify at the trial. Each testified that Curran was legally sane and had been perfectly in control of his actions and impulses at all times. 
typically of the testimony delivered by these experts was that of Professor Franz Zoli, who testified as to Curtin's actual motivation in his crimes being the desire to achieve the sexual gratification he demanded, and that this satisfaction could only be achieved by acts of brutality, violence, and Curtin's knowledge of the pain and misery his actions caused to others. Dr. Carl Berg testified that Curtin's motives in committing murder and attempted murder was 90% sadism. Okay, if you don't know what sadism, say, sadism is, it's a sexual disorder and the condition of experiencing sexual arousal in response to extreme pain, suffering, or humiliation of others. Several other terms have been used to describe the condition, and the condition may overlap with other conditions that involved inflicting that involve inflicting pain. So, for you naive people that don't know what sadism is, so it's you're only a sadist if you're the person that likes to inflict the pain, the pain, and gets you off. Um, you're what's the other one? Ah, oh, fuck! It slipped my mind. It's the other one where you where you like to receive the pain. Ah, oh, fuck! What is that? I don't remember the name. God damn it! Oh well. <laughs> And 10% revenge relating to his perceived sense of injustice for both the neglect and abuse he had endured, both as a child and the discipline he endured while incarcerated. Dr. Berg stated that despite Kern's admission to having embraced and digitally penetrated the corpse of Maria Hahn and to have spontaneously ejaculated while holding the soil covering the coffin of Christine Klein, his conclusion was that Kern was not a necrophiliac. So I guess, I mean, he's a doctor. He went to school for it, so he would know more than I do, but uh, I don't know. Further proof of Curran's awareness was referenced by the premeditated nature of his crimes, his ability to abandon an attack if he sensed a risk of being disturbed, and his acute memory of both his crimes and their chronological detail. Also disclosed in the first week of the trial were the deaths of the two boys whom Curran had confessed to drowning at the age of nine. When the prosecution suggesting these deaths indicated Curtin had displayed a homicidal personality dating much earlier than 1913. However, this view was disputed by the medical witnesses, who suggested that although indicative of an inherent depravity, these two deaths should not be compared to Curtin's later murders as to a child. The death of a friend can be seen as nothing more than an inconsequential passing. Upon cross-examination, Current's defense attorney, Dr. Alex Weiner, <laughs> <Wiener, laughs> did challenge these expert conclusions, arguing the sheer range of perversions his client had engaged in was tantamount to insanity. Although each doctor and psychiatrist remain adamant as to Curtin being legally sane and responsible for his actions. In a further attempt to discredit the validity of many of the charges recited at the opening stages of the trial, Wiener also questioned whether the occasional physical inaccuracies of his crimes described in his client's confession equated to Curtin having fabricated at least some of the crimes. Thus supporting his contention, Curtin possessed a diseased mind. In response, one of these experts, Dr. Carl Berg, conceded that sections of Curtin's confession were indeed false, but argued that the knowledge he possessed of the murder scenes and the wounds inflicted upon the victims left him in no doubt as to his guilt, and that the minor embellishments in his confessions could be attributed to Curtin's narcissistic personality. 
So Dr. Carl Berg believed, well, basically diagnosed Peter Curtin with narcissistic personality disorder. And narcissistic people are people that are always want attention and it's always about me, 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 me. And it's never about anybody else. So he kind of believed that, um, which would make sense that even though some of the murders he confessed to probably didn't happen or he probably like amped them up more, it's just so that way he could get more attention because he wanted to make himself look scarier or better for some reason in his eyes. The trial lasted 10 days, and on April 22nd, the jury retired to consider their verdict. They deliberated for under two hours before reaching their verdict. Kern, Peter Curtin was found guilty and sentenced to death on nine counts of murder. He was also found guilty of seven counts of attempted murder. Peter Curtin displayed no emotion as the sentence was passed. And although in his final address to the court, he did state that he now saw his crimes as being, this is what he said, so ghastly that I do not want to make any sort of excuse for them. Curtin did not lodge an appeal of his conviction, although he did submit a petition for pardon to the Minister of Justice, who at the time was pretty... He was, a, he, was, he was an opponent of capital punishment. He didn't like capital punishment. He thought it was um, barbaric. This petition was formally rejected on July 1st, though. Curtin remained composed when he learned of the news about his rejection and asked for permission to see his confessor, to write letters of apology to the relatives of his victims, and a final farewell letter to his wife. All these requests were granted to him. So he, would, he basically wrote a bunch of letters um, to all the victims of the people he murdered. Maybe he was just trying to save Grace because he knew his fucking time was coming. His number was up. And maybe he said, like, well, you know, maybe if I make something right, maybe I won't be judged so harshly if there is a God or, you know, whatever. And who knows? Too little, too late. Maybe. Who knows? He's probably getting butt-fucked right now by the devil. But it's Peter Curtin. He might be liking it. He's just... You know, just jerking it. On the evening of July 1st, 1931, Peter Curtin received his last meal, and he ordered Wiener Schnitzel. Not the Wiener Schnitzel that we have today. <laughs> A bottle of white wine and fried potatoes. Curtin devoured the entire meal before requesting a second helping. Prison staff decided, yeah, what the hell? And they granted his request. You know, they thought like, hey, you're going to be going, so might as well just enjoy it now. At 6 o'clock in the morning of July 2nd, Peter Kern was beheaded by guillotine in the grounds of Kingelpult's prison in Cologne. He was asked, he walked, he, actually, I'm sorry, he walked unassisted to the guillotine, and on each side <clears throat> was the prison psychiatrist and a priest. Shortly before his head was placed on the guillotine, Peter Curtin turned to the psychiatrist and asked this question. Tells me, after my head is chopped off, will I still be able to hear, at least for a moment? Because the sound of my own blood gushing from the stump of my neck, that would be the pleasure to end all pleasures. <laughs> when asked whether he had any last words to say, Curtin simply smiled and replied, No, I do not. Following Curtin's 1931 execution, his head was dissected and mummified. 
The brain was removed and subjected to forensic analysis in an attempt to explain his personality and behavior. The examination of Curtin's brain revealed no abnormalities. The autopsy conducted upon Curtin's body revealed that, aside from having an enlarged thymus, thymus gland, Curtin had not been suffering any physical abnormalities. The interviews Curtin granted to Dr. Carl Berg in 1930 and 1931 proved to be the first psychological study conducted upon a sexual serial killer. These inter interviews also formed the basis of Berg's book, which was called The Sadist. Shortly after World War II, Curtin's head was transported to the United States. It is currently on display at Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum in Wisconsin Dells in Wisconsin. And that is the end of the case of the vampire of Dusseldorf, Peter Curtin. And he was one fucked up dude. I, I told you. It was, I got bad. If you made it all the way to the end, bravo. Give yourselves a round of applause. Just know that somewhere in hell, Peter Curtin is probably jerking it off knowing that you listened to this episode. How do you feel about that? Does it make you feel good? <laughs> Uh, <clears throat> this this Peter Curran one was the one that you guys wanted to hear I'm pretty sure because it was so fucked up because I'll be honest with you <clears throat> I didn't really like the unicorn killer I never heard of that guy beforehand uh, my fiance happened to uh, come upon that book uh, because she works her job she works as um <clears throat> in a retirement home for veterans and um you sometimes, you know, they give their books away or I don't even know how she got these books. She just had the books one day, but she brought me a bunch of like um, Stephen King books, which I'm going to be reading slowly, but surely I will be reading. Although I still haven't read Dr. Sleep, which I'm a big fan of The Shining, and that is the sequel to The Shining. It's a continuation of it. There's going to be a movie of Dr. Sleep coming out soon, so I'm pretty excited for that. So I want to try to read and finish the book before the movie comes out, but I still have time because I think it's coming out in 2020. But yeah, so thank you again for joining me on this brutal, brutal, bloody, extra bloody and sexual episode of Strange Talk Podcast. If you made it all the way through, you deserve a like a fucking cookie or something, you know, just go listen to like a calming AS ASMR video to just clean that palate. Um, but hopefully you got through it. I'm pretty sure you did because it's not that bad. You're only hearing about it. Having see it, having if you see it, it's a totally different story. But then again, you might be a person who enjoys watching people die on live leak. And, you know, I guess. But it's not really that bad if you really think about it. You're just only looking at your own mortality. But the human body is very fragile, as you learn. So uh, uh, there's going to be a This Week in Crime on Wednesday, as you know it. That's usually how I do it. So... Be prepared for that. I'm probably probably going to be talking about Marvel's Avengers Endgame. <sighs> I'm still kind of reeling from that. No spoilers. Don't worry. No spoilers if you haven't seen it yet. But if you haven't, then my God, you need to get on the ball with that. It was really good. Really, really good. And I'm just still kind of healing from that movie. <laughs> <laughs> But if you enjoyed today's episode, feel free to subscribe if you haven't already. 
Um, and you know, if you enjoy Strange Talk podcast, the number one thing that you can do to help Strange Talk podcast is to show it to your friends. If you're in high school, in college, just fucking walk up to random people like, "Hey, you like fucking murder and shit? Why don't you listen to Strange Talk podcast?" You know, that really helps me out a lot. Also, what helps me out a lot is if you um, listen to Strange Talk podcast via iTunes or Apple Podcasts, whatever. It's the same thing. But if you could take the time and write a review or just, you know, give me a good whatever you feel I deserve amount of stars, because that really helps me out because it gets the podcast out there and it gets gets it up there on the list of podcasts that are listened to. Uh, so, yeah, if you're not already, follow me on Instagram at Strange Talk Podcast. I was going to say via Strange Talk Podcast, but it's at Strange Talk Podcast. You'll find and be able to keep up to date of what I'm doing and working on. I usually announce episodes. I usually fuck around a lot and just fucking spam memes because that's what I do. <laughs> um, if you want to send me news articles to be featured in This Week in Crime, you can do so via Instagram at Strange Talk Podcast. Or if you like to keep it old school, you can do so via email at Strange Talk Podcast at Outlook.com. What is that email again? It's strange talk podcast at outlook.com. What's the Instagram again? At strange talk podcast at outlook.com. Do I sound like one of those stupid, crazy commercials? That's good, then. That's what I like. So I am back, and I will be finally coming back and providing more episodes and just hopefully get it up there, you know. Um, also, I have a Patreon. But to be honest with you, I haven't really been too much on the Patreon. So I want to thank you to the patreon people that are on there um i appreciate you supporting it even though knowing i'm not really doing that much with it because i've kind of died down a little bit because i was busy with work and everything but hopefully now that i'm in i've gotten into the flow of everything and i'm in the rhythm i'm gonna be you know trying really a lot more you know doing more stuff with the patreon but i do have a patreon so if you want to support the show and you know hell fucking you know give me that money so that way i can only focus on doing the podcast if you enjoy hearing my um, voice, even though I sound like a prepubescent boy, um, you know, be more than welcome. I will take that money. <laughs> but thank you again for listening to this episode of The Unicorn Killer and The Vampire of Dusseldorf, also known as Peter Curtin. It was a bloody fucking episode, and it was, hope it was a good time for you. So, till Wednesday... Stay strange, people. <laughs>